Atamaria. Welcome to First Up. It's Ramire. That is Friday, the 14th of October. Coming up, the Parkland mass shooter Nicholas Cruz has been sentenced. We'll have the latest on that. The cost of building a home has reached a new record high. Thought we'd already done that, but no, it's reached another record high. And Christchurch is the epicentre of the arts and culture world this weekend. How about this? Today you're going to hear how the Garden City is going to play host to the Hip Hop Summit this weekend and how 32 dogs will display the latest in canine couture at a fashion show. Bruiser, the beautiful black Labrador, very confident. He's coming out to I'm Too Sexy. Willow, the miniature dashhound, dancing queen by Abba. Norman, the French Bulldog Terrier Jump Around House of Pain Atamaria, we've got an interesting and very varied Friday for you today. First up, um, we'll go to the United States. So the news there, Nicholas Cruz has been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This for the 2018 shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, which is in Parkland in Florida. Joining me now from New York is our correspondent Bevan Hurley. Morena Bevan. Um, interesting uh, to watch the, the you know the the jury's decision. there read out went for a very long time. What's been the reaction to that as the sentence, life in prison? Morena Nathan. Yes, um, the verdict um, you know came after a really uh, emotionally fraught three-month trial, and it was read out to a courtroom that was packed with survivors and family members of those 17 students and staff who were killed in 2018. And the reaction appeared to be one of shock uh, and disappointment from some of the family members, at least. They um, visibly looked upset and shook their heads as that really lengthy 17-count verdict was read out by Judge Elizabeth Shearer. Um, the verdict and uh, explaining, the jury in explaining their verdict found that there were especially heinous aggravating factors that would have been necessary to reach a death penalty sentence. But at least one juror had decided that they, that they were not outweighed by mitigating uh, circumstances and it had to be a unanimous uh, verdict from that 12-person panel to reach the death penalty verdict. Um, now, the ultimate decision on whether to sentence Cruz to death will lie with Judge Shearer, who can uh, choose whether or not to follow the recommendation of the jury. And this all comes, you know, more than four years since Cruz um, went to his former um, high school in Parkland, Florida, armed with an AR-15 and stalked um, the freshman uh, building, murdering 14 students and three staff members. He chose Valentine's Day specifically so that the students um, would never be able to celebrate that day again and eventually pled guilty um, to the murders a year ago. Uh, in his um, defence, uh, his attorney, Melissa, Melissa McNeil, said that his birth mother's excessive drinking during pregnancy had left with him with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Um, but prosecutors painted a very different picture during the trial, Nathan. They said that the um, massacre was calculated and purposeful. Um, and the families had made clear that they did want to come to court and tell their stories, however painful that experience might be, and hopefully they are able to find some peace after this verdict. Well, someone who's been trying very hard to make sure they don't have peace is the conspiracist Alex Jones. And he's been ordered to pay, this is a staggering figure, it's close to $1.75 billion New Zealand dollars to the families of the victims of that Sandy Hook shooting, right? Which is, you know, these are all very connected when they talk about these. Does he have that kind of cash? 
Yeah, we, we heard um, expert testimony from forensic accountants during the trial that he has made a staggering $100 million over the past 10 years, pushing those abhorrent lies that Sandy Hook was staged. And one expert put his net wealth at around $270 million, largely on the back of selling those sort of doomsday supplements on his Infowars site. Um, now, Jones um, spent 10 years trying to avoid any accountability for what he's done. He, um, earlier this year, he placed the holding company that owns Infowars into bankruptcy um, in an attempt to get out of paying any damages, knowing that this was probably on its way, while continuing to travel the country by private jet, I might add. But he is not going to be able to outrun this verdict. Um, the lawyers who represented the families in this trial promised they will do everything legally possible to enforce it. Um, outside court afterwards, Attorney Chris Matei said that um, we are going to go through whatever forum we have to, as long as it takes, because that's what justice requires. Now, Jones has um, really exploited uh, pretty much every major tragedy in the US in the past 20 years. You know, he um, he spreads um, disinformation about everything from 9-11 to the Boston Marathon bombing to the COVID pandemic, all while pushing those wild conspiracy theories that led people to his website. Um, and he has really been mainstreamed um, by the right wing in this country since about 2015. Um, and, you know, watching some of those clips where he talks about Sandy Hook, where he says it's synthetic and completely fake, um, it just really makes your stomach turn. Um, and speaking outside court after the verdict was read, um, Nicole Hockley, who lost his son Dylan in the massacre, said that the sh verdict showed that good does prevail. While another, um, Bill Sherlock, whose wife Mary was a school psychologist at Sandy Hook, who was killed while confronting the gunman, said that this would make other Alex Jones wannabes think twice about entering his realm of lies and deceit. So it was a really powerful moment for those families after 10 years of just extraordinary suffering. Yeah. Bevan, thank you very much for your time on that uh, two uh, stories there. Yes, just uh, what, a, what a horrible reality to face there for the, many of those parents. Uh, but of course, uh, yeah, that big sentence just coming out this morning there for Nicholas Cruz. Uh, found uh, obviously uh, guilty but uh, will be spending the rest of his life in prison without the possibility of parole for those 2018 shootings. It is 11 past 5. A new report shows that wildlife populations have fallen by 70% since 1970. The Living Planet Index produced uh, by the Worldwide Fund for Nature says Latin America and the Caribbean have seen the worst losses of nearly 95%. Sean Dilley has this report. Striding with grace, content with its natural habitat in the Amazon, but maybe that's because this big cat doesn't understand the danger that lurks around the corner. The conservation charity, the Worldwide Fund for Nature, says the breakup of natural habitat and climate change means animal populations here are in particular danger. The charity's latest Living Planet report warns that global wildlife populations have fallen by nearly 70% in around 50 years. The study, which assesses the abundance of almost 32,000 populations of 5,230 species of animals, birds, reptiles, amphibians and fish around the world, suggests that population sizes declined by 69% on average between 1970 and 2018. Species living in freshwater lakes and wetlands have fallen by an average of 83%. The most impacted species live here in Latin America and the Amazon where deforestation is destroying trees and the species who rely on them to sustain life. 
Wildlife population sizes here have fallen by 94% over the past half century, according to the report. Other areas such as North America, Asia and Europe have seen a smaller decline, but climate change threatens species everywhere. The UK is one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world, with just half of its nature richness remaining. The Worldwide Fund for Nature says it's now or never if we're to restore the natural world. The government says it's committed to halting the decline of nature by 2030 and that it will continue to improve on wildlife laws. But the WWF says it needs to act very quickly if it wants to protect species from danger and distinction. That was the BBC's Sean Dilley. It's 13 minutes past five. I'm Nathan Radder here at First Up on RNZ National. Let's get to our news from Africa. Oh, I see some horrible news there in Uganda as well about a virus which is back. Um, joining me now from Ghana is our correspondent, Nabil Ahmed. Morena, Nabil, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, uh, Nathan. Morena. Hey, before we get to Uganda, tell me about these floods in Nigeria. Well, indeed, um, it's a very devastating situation in Nigeria uh, because authorities are saying that uh, more than 500 uh, people have been killed uh, due to this floods that has been ravaging the country in some weeks now. Now, um, the situation is such that uh, some 1,500 others have been wounded while 1.4 million are displaced. Now, um, issues surrounding flood started uh, around July this year and it spread in many parts of Nigeria. And the reason is that uh, there's been excess water from dams within Nigeria and also the spillage of uh, major dams in neighboring Cameroon. And these spillage of the water ends up uh, I mean, flooding people's homes and many parts of the uh, country. And it's quite a devastating situation. Lots of people have been displaced and um, the government is trying to see how it would get relief items to these people, uh, Nathan. Uh, let's go to Ethiopia now. Can you tell us why did thousands of Ethiopian students refuse to sit their national exams? Well, uh, basically, it's because the authorities are trying to block them from cheating in exams. Now, cheating in exams in Ethiopia, uh, in the Amara region, has been a very big issue in recent years. And the fact that uh, these students have worked out is because some measures have been put in place that will not allow them to cheat. Now, uh, the statement from the Education Ministry in Ethiopia says um, that new measures that have been introduced is to curb the uh, rampant epidemic uh, cheating by students in uh, exams and um, those exams that they sit in is also very crucial for them before they would go to universities now to limit the cheating the government has moved more than 500,000 uh, students in the first round alone to different university campuses around the country and now they were also uh, supposed to be confined in campuses for exam period and stopped from accessing their mobile phones and the internet. And um, this has caused a lot of uproar in the Amara region in Ethiopia. And one student actually has died um, as a result of some of these protests uh, by students um, because of the measures that the government has put in place to stop the cheating in exams, Nathan. 
Oh, that's horrible. Um, now, I mentioned Uganda at the top there. There's been an outbreak of the Ebola virus back in Uganda. What can you tell us about that? Yes, indeed. Um, 19 people have died so far from the Ebola outbreak in Uganda. And it's become a worrying situation because as the government is trying to control the situation, uh, there are some of the patients who resort to herbal drugs and also herbal treatments um, for the Ebola. And this has forced the president of Uganda, Yoweri Museveni, to direct traditional healers to stop treating people um, entirely who may come to them with any ailments because um, in order to care or to control the spread of the disease, um, they do not want people going to traditional healers to seek I mean, uh, treatment. And one man who died in a hospital later actually had to travel to uh, uh, leave uh, the capital, Kampala, to a rural part of the country to seek treatment from a uh, traditional healer. He later went back to a hospital and died there. And this has caused a lot of um, uproar in the country. And efforts are being made to stop all traditional healers from getting closer to people who are suspected to have had um, in the Ebola. Yeah. Uh, Nabil, thank you very much for your time. Um, yes, uh, there's our friend who joins us every week out of Ghana. That is Nabil Ahmed. It's 18 past five. I'm Nathan Rarida here at First Up on RNZ National. Still to come on the program today, CoreLogic's chief property economist uh, joins us to explain why the cost of building a new home has hit a record high. And wake up the kids and the neighbours and the neighbours' kids. It is Fruit of the Week, happening soon. I've lost a lovely bunch of coconuts There they are standing in the air Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. They are. It's time to check in with all the fresh produce news from the markets. And joining us now is our Minister of Fruit and Veggies here is Glenn Forsyth. Morning, Glenn. Morning, Nathan. How are you? I'm good. It's it's a special day, but this is an everyday for you. We understand it's World Fruit and Vegetable Day. Yeah, that's right. Like New Zealand's five plus a day, they've joined the global pool for a world first uh, for a world fruit and vegetable day today. In that which we're celebrating. The the day aims to recognise the initiative to raise the awareness of the vital role fruit and vegetables play. And the theme of the 2022 World, uh, what is it here, Food Day is to leave no one behind, which speaks to issues such as food security, something, in my opinion, we are still ignoring. Now, Chile and Italy, they're two nations that focus heavily on eating your five plus a day. And one trick is to start the family at a young age when it comes to eating fresh fruit and veggies, variation of them and in season. Now, interesting to note, the Upper North Island are better eating their five plus a day than the South Island. My guess here would be, you know, it's at least a little bit more competitive at retail in Auckland if you shop around. More people are eating produce for health reasons and improving their immune system these days. Now, to increase your intake, they say you can slice in-season fruit on your breakfast cereal, avocado on your toast, apples and carrots for your snacks, or chop up any leftover dinner meat and uh, make a crunchy salad for the lunch next day. So they're all helpful hints to get some more five-plus-a-day into you. Beautiful. Tell us about um, a whole bunch of green veggies uh, on your list today as well for part of this. (laughs) That's right. If we were to pick on a colour, green this morning for vegetables, there are plenty of yummy choices. Silver beet, lettuce, asparagus, 
broccoli, courgettes, beans, and cucumbers. I mean, how's that? That was seven choices. They're all in good supply. Potted living herbs are well supplied, along with white button mushrooms and coomera still. Some of our pumpkins late in the season don't have the best of holding quality, so if you are lucky to come across some, we do have uh, tong and butternut here. Now, the rest of your vegetable menu improving in supplies are hothouse crops such as capsicums, eggplant, and tomatoes. Keep your eyes peeled, as from Monday, expect retails to fall further. And the, fir- uh, the frost in Hamilton that took out our largest asparagus grower for a couple of weeks hasn't harmed supply at all, as all other areas stepped up. So asparagus and courgettes would be your best in-season buys this weekend for vegetables. Oh, that's good. The courgettes coming back. Um, fruit, though, it's, well, this is a weird bit for fruit, isn't it? There's not really a lot around at the moment. I oh, know, we've, we've sort of lost lost a bit of traction, a little lean on the ground uh, with fruit picks. However, best supplier, avocados, mandarins, grapes and New Zealand strawberries are taking over from Australian supply as our numbers start to increase there. Now we have lots to talk about for Fruit of the Week, Nathan, this morning. Oh yes, again, so, what, what is your Fruit of the Week? Okay, so it's New Season Blueberries. Yeah, I know. So again, this Waikato frost last Friday, thats they smashed the blueberry farms there. One of the coldest October days on record, and there's been big losses for their whole season. Very, very sad. But we've given New Zealand blueberries the nod, as Blue Royal blueberries are in good supply now through till December. Growing from the far north to Motueka, they are a new variety delivering a consistent eating experience. Now, fun fact, their marketing manager, Jeff Robinson, we started together as store boys at the Tory Street Markets back in 19. 1985. He's a hoot, and we caught up um, on a few war stories this week in Wellington. Blueberries are high in antioxidants and a good source of dietary fibre, vitamin C and vitamin E. Now, Jeffy's favourite way of eating them, by the handful as a snack, that's how he loves them most, or topped on as desserts with a good lashing of uh, whipped cream. So try some Blue Royal blueberries this weekend. Love it. Thank you very much there, Glenn. That's, yeah, I was going to say, you, okay, buddy. the favourite way is you chuck it in the palm of your hand and you buff them in your mouth. Oh, oh. That's what, they are, they crunch too. Like how those, they used to eat those rats on that movie, what was that TV show called V, V in the 90s. Roll a roll a pole, a penny a Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's pretty good to go and sit off and just wonder about yourself whenever you think of that program, V, in the 90s. You guys remember V? 2101 if you remember V. Science fiction-y, odd show. Uh, let's have a look at happenings on this day, the 14th of October. Uh, there is, uh, on 1888, the birthday of Catherine Mansfield on this day. There you are, in 1888. Also, um, my first James Bond, so he was my favourite, Roger Moore. He was born in 1927. I think it was Moonraker might have been the first one I got to go and see at the movies. It's pretty cool. Uh, celebrating a birthday on this day and looking fabulous, Ralph Lauren... Still with us at 83 years old. Carlos Spencer turns 47 years old today. And Steve Coogan is 57, the brilliant comedian. Big day for movies today. A couple of um, very stylistic um, films came out. In 1973, Mean Streets. And then in 1994... It's still still in my top three all the time. Pulp Fiction, what a what a film that was. Uh, in 1926, a book called Winnie the Pooh was first published. Uh, you might know this one, you might not. Winnie the Pooh's name came from a um, a bear. Uh, so a Canadian le- uh, lieutenant, Harry Colburn, caught a bear and uh, named her Winnie after the city of Winnipeg. 
uh, Winnie the Bear li- ended up living in the London Zoo and um, yeah, that's where Winnie the Winnie the Pooh's name came from. And on this day, those of you that uh, live in the town that I grew up in uh, will know the town clock has 1066 on it. Our town was Hastings, our city is Hastings, and on this day in 1066, the Battle of Hastings was fought King Harold II of England, defeated there by the invading army of William, Duke of Normandy, establishing Normans as the rulers of England. And that is the uh, all of the happenings that I could find on this day for October the 14th. What you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. It's business, it's business time. Joining us now from our business team is Giles Beckford, and, and I feel like uh, the the American office when Toby, the HR, HR guy, shows up and then Michael gets all like sad. What is it when we have this bit here where it says the dark side of workplace humour? Oh. What, what is this? Have you got your copy of the European Journal of Humour Research. Oh, uh, not on me. It's probably still in the mail or something. Okay. I didn't know such a magazine existed, but it's a worthy academic journal, apparently. Um, and it's uh, carrying uh, into an article um, about uh, research done by University of Auckland, uh, some researchers there, who've been looking at... Uh, the role of humour within the workplace and the relationship between humour and bullying. Now, they say that they didn't set out to see whether there was a link between joke-telling and fun atmosphere uh, and bullying, but in the research and the interviews that they did and their observations, they said there's quite a dark side to workplace humour. They suggest that uh, that, that it can be uh, used as a look, it can be used as a form of bullying, um, and it's even more insidious and difficult to address because the, the use of humour creates a sort of a smoke screen, which to some extent sort of protects the perpetrator. Uh, and they've done one little case study, looked at the business which had about thirty workers. It doesn't exist anymore, but I don't think that's because of the quality of the humour that went around. <laughs> but they uh, observed sexualized, dominating and hierarchical humour. However, and this is the interesting bit, all the people there, all the workers said they didn't consider it to be bullying. So I don't know whether bullying was in the eye of the researcher. Uh, certainly uh, for the workers themselves, they just thought it was part of their normal uh, atmosphere. Uh, some of you know, the, the interactions, but yeah, it, well, it's always interesting, is it? Because, like you say, I mean, people set their lines at different places, don't they? Of where they think the, the, that the line is, and that's why it's always so hard. But we, you mentioned something there with that. We, we've all heard that one before from the person that said something which is re- actually truly horrible. Oh, it's just bloody, it's just joking. Yeah, just that's joke, right. Yes. Hey, and and, now. and, and, that, and that's jokes. precisely it, isn't it? Which yep. is that it can be used. And they make the point that somebody who's uh, a good performer... Uh, and delivers lines well and is quick-witted and the like can actually be uh, you know, the real bully, and they're the ones that are hardest to stop. So pause food for thought here about uh, you know, the jokes that uh, go around the workplace. I mean, we, of course, work for a company which is quite hot on these sorts of issues, so over the years I've taken to self-bullying so that I don't have any complaints against me. Yes. But uh, from that point of view... Yeah. The next time you hear a joke at work, you're thinking, yeah, well, yeah, nah. Well, I might have to send you off to a meeting with yourself. 
That's what we <laughs> exactly. do, Exactly. Thank you very much, sir. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report today at 10 to 7. Let's see what your New Zealand dollar can get you today. Uh, it can get you the, the following things, your New Zealand dollar. 56.19 US cents, 89.44 Australian cents, 57.46 euro cents, 59, oh, 49.53 uh, British pence, 4.03 yuan and 82.65 Japanese yen. It is 28 and a half to 6 here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radity. Well, hip-hop performers, artists and fans from all around the country have descended on Christchurch for the annual Hip-Hop Summit. So to tell us more about this and what hip-hop means in Aotearoa New Zealand context is our RNZ colleague, he's Brad Warrington, otherwise known as DJ Sticky Fingers. I'm not sure if he's got the turntables with him today, but he's in the Garden City uh, for this weekend's event. Morena Sticky, how are you? Uh, I'm really good. You know, it's an interesting phenomena. Um, those of us at a certain age can remember where we first heard it or where we first saw it or, or whatever. But tell me this um, why do you think the New Zealand, why did New Zealand take to hip hop culture? I honestly think it is our. Uh strong Māori and Pacific influence here in New Zealand. I think that it's a natural kind of progression for people who are, um, who are descendants of Māori and Pacifica to be, you know, drawn towards um, a, a platform of expression like hip-hop. I think, yeah, I think that's, that's the main reason why. It's a lot different from Australia for some reason, but I think it is our Pacifica roots. Yeah. Now, we, you know, when, when you talk about hip-hop, it's, you know, people think, oh, is that just, you know, is that just the music or whatever? But they always talk about the realms. Can you explain to people all the different parts of it that make up this as a type of a subculture? Yes, so most people would think of hip-hop as just the music, but it's actually encompassing the four elements, which is DJing, which is what I partake in, um, breakdancing, uh, uh, emceeing, and oh, I can't remember breakdancing MC and graffiti, graffiti art. So like street art. Um, yeah. So the, the three of them together, you know, or four of them together. Plus, there's a bunch of others as well that people loosely, you know, relate to hip hop, um, like street hustle and beatboxing and other things. But the four elements are the, are the main kind of like pillars of um, of the culture. And yeah, so like it's, I mean, graffiti was probably the first the first round to really take off. And then obviously Cool Herc in 73 went down to the basketball courts in the Bronx and like wired up his turntables to the, um, uh, to, to the, the lamppost and then dropped some funk music and then looped up the break. And that was hip hop music kind of like the, the start in 73. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and then like you've got the MCs that come along and rock the party and host the party. And then you've got um, the breakdancers that come along and, Throw shape, so you know they're all <laughs> encompassing. They all they're all related to each other. Um, it's amazing. It's an amazing um, uh, platform for people who um, who are uh, you know who come from hard backgrounds. Um, yeah, it's um, it's such a special type of culture. Like, there's no other kind of mu- music that is uh, that's like it. There's not kind of like it. So. No, so tell us uh, the uh, what's on the agenda for the summit. When does it start, and uh, you know where, where do we go to? Well, it kicked off on Sunday uh, yeah. last week with graffiti on Sunday. So they 
around Christchurch. Christchurch is pretty well known for its uh, street art now. So in Gatfilla, they had um, a graffiti jam where um, some of the best graffiti artists in Christchurch came and uh, did a big uh, murals all around the wall. And um, there's also like a dance mat. You'll be, you'd love it, mate. Where you cut shapes and um, <laughs> like in the middle of this like dance pad while surrounded by graffiti. Um, then like there's been keynote speaks, uh, speeches. There's also uh, Wednesday there was um, Woman and Hip Hop Night where the whole lineup was all female DJs and MCs and people who are involved in the hip hop scene. Um, and then like uh, there's been keynote speakers from people who have, um, you know, gone on to other jobs who use hip-hop as a platform to, to help them um, succeed in life. Uh, yeah, there's so many great keynote speakers down at the library. Um, it's all free. Um, so, like, today there's a breakdancing keynote speech um, with Common Ground, which is one of the uh, – which is the, the best um, breakdancing crew in Christchurch, and they've gone around the world, and some of their members are, like, some of the best breakdancers in the world. Well, um, I, I would like to think that yeah. if we're in Christchurch here, there's going to be the music of Scribe. And also, there better be some Dark Tower happening there. Sticky, I want to hear a bit of oh, that. Unfortunately, no, no, there's no, no Scribe, oh, no Scribe to, or Dark Tower. Oh, you've got to just get it on I the know. turntables. Goodness me. It's Christchurch. I know. I'll drop, I'll drop not many. Don't yes, worry about that. you do that. Don't worry about that, cool. buddy. Hey, th- um, thanks, yeah, thanks, yeah. Sticky. Uh, there is uh, DJ Sticky Fingers there, of course, uh, that hip-hop summit, like we said, going on uh, in downtown Christchurch. And uh, it sounds like an awesome. It's all, it's all go. You'll hear something else that's happening soon, too. comes Clay Wilson with his giant sack of sport. How do I follow in those footsteps? Yeah, I know. DJ Sticky Fingers, <laughs> the great man himself. Lots going on in sporty wise. What's what's your what are your favourites today? My favourite is the Maradona ball. Now, everyone remembers. Well, everyone who loves sport remembers the Hand of God goal. Yes, and I remember it because it's 1986, and that is the year I've born. The danger of aging myself there. Well, oh, I there have. you go. Yeah, yeah. but um, the shirt that he wore in that game sold earlier this year for 14 million dollars. So um, the next item on the list is the ball itself. And the ball itself was actually picked up by the referee in that game, a Tunisian guy by the name of Ali bin Nasser. And he's now putting the ball up for auction. How did they let him get away with it? Like, mine, I'm out. <laughs> I think that's, that's probably the better story. How, did, is, he, how yeah. did he end up getting the ball? But they're expecting it to go for around $5 million. So between the ball and the shirt, you're talking about $20 million New Zealand dollars here. So a lot of money. But, of course, a very famous moment in that quarterfinal against yeah. England, wasn't it? And then... People often forget he scored one of the most brilliant That's goals. That's the one, yeah. Just a few minutes later where he just weaved his way through basically the whole England team and put the ball in the back of the net. Um, it's an incredible Just one. that game itself has got so much behind it, hasn't it? But yeah. yeah, that's really, really interesting to see that ball up for auction and just how much it's going to go for. Can I give you my favourite sports story of the week? Sure. So, um, and I'll just explain this to people listening. So in the NBA, when all the brand new players come out, if you finish right at the bottom to try and even things up. They go, okay, well, you finish, you know, you get to pick first, right, is what they do. And what happens is that every now and then there's people like a fellow called Michael Jordan or someone called LeBron James comes along. There is a young man called Victor Wimbanyana who was going to be better, Unreal, better than Le- yes, already better than LeBron James. He's so good that the man who's in charge of the NBA had to come out and tell the 10 bottom teams, you need to keep trying to win this year because all of them are doing the, 
This guy. So they're like trying to swap all their good players away. They're like, this guy we've got's good. Who wants him? Just have him, please. They're all trying to finish last. There's about 10 of them. I did hear him come out and say that, and I thought, good luck with trying to stop teams just deliberately being awful. Because it's so year. worth it. Yeah. It's so worth it. That's, if you get him. Yeah. That's one downside of having a draft system, isn't it? Is yeah. that you do get teams every year that, that decide that they want <laughs> they this do. amazing player coming but through. But I love that. Gonna... I thought that was a brilliant storyline. Yeah. It was great. And yeah. um, also, uh, World Cup going on too. Um, it got off to a great start last weekend. Yeah. Yeah, so Black Ferns are playing Sunday uh, afternoon this weekend against Wales, uh, a game they're pretty heavily expected to win. That Australian game was really their toughest pool test. Pool test, yeah. But, so they're going to see a few changes. The team's actually named later this morning. A few changes in that game, but yeah, expecting New Zealand to hopefully get a bit, a bit better start this time and, and get another win on the board. But the big game really this weekend is tomorrow in Whangarei, where England are playing France, and they're the two heavyweights of the tournament, really, the two northern hemisphere. So I'm not quite sure how they ended up in the same pool. I haven't yet to figure that out, but um, that that should be a cracking game too, the really, really, really um, heavyweight teams of the women's game. It's all going down in funky ray. There it is. Cool. Thank you very much, Clay. Uh, yes, you can hear more from the sports team right across uh, the day, and, of course, they'll keep you updated all throughout the weekend. Uh, it is 22.6. I'm Nathan Radity here at First Up in RNZ uh, National. Yep, more expensive to build yourself a brand new house. So CoreLogic's Kelvin Davidson joins us to talk about that. And uh, if you love your fashion show and you love your dogs, boy, if we're going to treat for you, stay listening. Thank you. The professionals of Morning Report are here after six and they're all set to go. It is Kim Hill who's uh, with us right now from the Wellington studio. Kia ora, Kim, how are uh, you? That music always makes me want to say the name's Bond, James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Should I leap on in there? Uh, we will have coverage of the of the torrid session of the abuse and care inquiry yesterday where one of Gloria Vale's leaders gave evidence. We will talk to a former resident of Gloria Vale. There's a new Omicron sub-variant here, Michael Baker explains, and what does, you've mentioned this in the headlines, what does the soaring cost of construction mean for house insurance? Maybe we have to review how much we're paying to insure our house given the price of the rebuild. Wellington is so short of bus drivers that over 60 trips have been suspended from next week to, says Metlink, minimise uncertainty. Really? I suppose it's good to know that your bus is certainly not going to come. Hmm. And we have our Friday political panel. RNZ's Craig McCulloch and Newsroom's Joe Moyer this morning. Did you feel the earthquake? No, I didn't. When was this? Um, Just after three. um, And it was around French Pass. So Wellington got sugared a bit. I woke up, but by the time I woke up, it was all over, thank heavens. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> I was going to go get out and check the Lardro. That's the first thing that we always had to do in our house in Hastings, check, check the Lardro. The, the Lardro. You know, the, the, the Lardro, the little beautiful little sculptures that they've got. It's my mum's little pottery that she loves. Ah. The Lardro. you got to watch okay. that. It's very gentle. It's beautiful. Ah.
Nice. Lovely. Okay. Thank you very much. There you are. Kim Hill, who's here after six. Yes, look, um, she just mentioned it there too. Um, the cost of building a home has reached a new record high. And CoreLogic says it's likely to get even worse before it gets better. So according to its just released Cordell Construction Cost Index, the cost to build a 200-square-metre, three-bedroom, two-bathroom, single-storey brick-and-tile house went up by 3.4% in the third quarter of this year. And it's nearly 10% more expensive to build now than it was a year ago. Joining us now is CoreLogic's Chief Property Economist, Kelvin Davidson. Kia ora, Kelvin. Thanks for being up for us this morning. No worries. Um, what is driving these prices up? I thought all the jib had arrived in, in, you know, in, in bins and it's here and it's all happy days. Yeah, I mean, the factors that are driving up the costs are the ones we're all pretty aware of. The, the, the industry is still very, very busy. So you're seeing capacity constraints, you know, builders' wages are going up. So those things are still having a pretty strong impact on construction costs. Now, as you say, materials, that, that pipeline is easing a little bit. It's, it's still pretty tight you know it's not back to normal so I guess we're expecting to see that influence start to come through but just in these Q3 numbers there was still quite a big influence from those materials costs so still pretty tough out there but I think we, we might be at that turning point just about where, where things do get a bit easier. Okay well, you know if there's people listening going well I'm not building a new, a new house at the moment so that's sweet for me like what what is the concern for people if they're not right now involved in a building a new house project? Yeah, well, so the thing is that people forget that if they had to rebuild their house, that's basically a new build too. And, and obviously this is where the insurance side of it comes in. So having your sum insured right up to date is very important because if you know if, if something happened, a disaster did strike, you have to rebuild. And so with costs going up 10% year on year, people could easily find themselves but underinsured. So it's about keeping that sum insured up to date whether you're building new or, or facing that possible risk of, of rebuild. So um, important for everyone, really. I'm sure, you, you know, when you go through and you gather all this data, um, I've got no idea at the moment of going on, like, about how many homes uh, or new builds are being built in New Zealand at the moment? Is there a rough number that you've got there you can tell me? Yeah, it's very, very high. So new dwelling consents, that's the approvals that go through councils, they're running at about 50,000 on an annual basis. So that's that's higher than ever before, more or less. And you do have some sort of fail rate in terms of consent through to actual house on the ground. But we're seeing probably around 35,000 new houses on the ground each year. So there is a fail rate, as I say, but that's the sort of scale we're talking about. And these are the highest numbers since mid-1970s really so it's it's really busy that's where the capacity pressures come in right and then so uh, do the building companies do they get a bit competitive then I guess you know it's like if they've taken on a, um, a contract to build something and they want to get it built they need builders to do it right so is uh, you know is there almost a little bit of I don't know what do you call it within industry poaching going on of worker resources uh, yeah, I'm not too sure about that. Probably the bigger issue, that may well be going on. That's what you see, I guess, in competitive sectors. But also the issue for staff at the moment is, is the whole migration picture. And not only are we getting new migrants in, or we're not getting many new migrants in, but we're also losing people overseas. So so those capacity issues in terms of labour could actually become a little bit more of an issue in the near term because we know wages are higher in Australia, for example, so people are quite attracted to that at the moment. So, yeah, there's certainly going to be a bit of pressure still on that labour supply, but at least in terms of materials, you can get plasterboard now, and so that's becoming a bit easier. That'll be helping costs. 
Yeah. I know you mentioned there about, you know, you can get higher, you know, you could get paid slightly higher over the ditch or, you know, I guess other places around the world to go. The cost of building a house in New Zealand, do you have an idea of how it stacks up against other places in the world? Like, is, are we an expensive place to build at the moment? Yes, I don't have those things right off the top of my head, but from from past experience, I think we are fairly high up there, and part of it's to do with, when you look at the overall cost to build, part of it's to do with land prices, which which are quite high in New Zealand, as well as a perception, that maybe more than a perception, but I don't want to sort of overextend my reach, but around regulatory costs, they're quite a big part of, of building here, so getting a consent through the system the, the developer actually or the subdivider actually haven't got resource consent in the first place. So those sort of land regulatory costs, I, I think, in an international context, are quite high. So that, that does add to the pressures here too, as well as materials and labour and all of that now. So, Kelvin, you know, there's a, there's a canary in the gold mine for a lot of New Zealand families called the block, right? And they get these people and they have them build, build a producer a free house for 12 weeks and then the producer sells it and keeps their um, their cut. Um, anyway, <laughs> just recently they had their thing, you know, they went to auction and it's exciting. You're supposed to watch these hardworking Kiwis win all this money and I think one house sold for $100 over the reserve. It wasn't really that flash. Then I see that you've got 50,000, uh, around 50,000 new builds at the moment. So for people looking to buy is it good news at least that you're not seeing you know for example the block the people aren't earning four hundred thousand dollars off doing this in 12 weeks is is it a good sign perhaps for people wanting to buy in the next few years yeah i think that's that's right when prices across the housing market as a whole are falling so people out there looking to buy are either waiting for prices to fall further or you know potentially snapping up some good deals and that's whether they're a first-time buyer or potentially an investor uh, that's within the existing housing stock. And then, of course, you add on the, the steady flow of new builds coming through, and especially townhouse-type properties in Auckland. There's a lot of that sort of thing coming through with the unitary plan. So it, it is, it, it's certainly the market is in buyer's favour at the moment, whether you're looking at an existing property or a new build, and, and probably going to stay that way for a little while. We, we don't really think house prices will stop falling until to into next year. So uh, the, the, the problem, of course, is mortgage rates are very high. Getting credit is harder than it's been in the past. So it's never easy. There's always trade-offs. But, but certainly from that point of view of having a, an abundant supply of properties to choose from, that, that's certainly in buyer's favour. Yeah, it is. But your advice now for, for people there as to what maybe have a look, with this current situation about the, the prices going up there uh, to rebuild, your advice is to go and just make sure you've got your, insur- uh, your insurance sorted out? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And most, if not all, insurers will have a, an easy to use calculator on their website. So you can just go in and put in all your characteristics of your property if it's not already pre populated, which often it is with your characteristics. So go in and do that. It'll give you an estimate of, of how much it would cost to rebuild because that's, that's the thing with the changes to insurance now. It's not just always replacement value. You've, you've got to actually choose your sum. And so you've got to make sure that that's kept up to date with how much it would actually cost to rebuild. Yeah, Kelvin, thank you so much for your time, uh, CoreLogic's Chief Property Economist, Kelvin Davidson there. Well, finally this morning, it's a great way to go into the weekend. The Dogs of Christchurch will be strutting their stuff on stage this weekend in the first ever Colombo Dog Fashion Show. Uh, As a way to help retailers who've had a hard time during the pandemic, 32 dogs will seek to wow the judges as they display the very latest in canine couture. I spoke to Lily Cooper, who organised the event, which is being held on Sunday morning at the Colombo Show 
shopping precinct in Sydenham. It's been hard times in retail and we wanted to do something different after COVID and this is probably the first dog fashion show in New Zealand. Dog fashion accessories are a big thing nowadays and people love their dogs. (laughs) They do. And they love to show them off as well as one of those things. Now tell me this, these dogs that you've had, are they they runway experienced or how have they practised their their little walk of about five metres and then the pause and the half turn? Like how's that gone? (laughs) That's exactly right. Unsure if they're experienced, but I would like to just reel off three or four of the little dogs' names and their types and what they're going to dance to because they come out on stage with the wonderful music from the DJ and in front of the two judges. So we've got Oscar, the Shih Tzu. He, of course, according to his owners, has had been attacked by bigger dogs, so he's got a few issues. So we've chosen I Will Survive, Gloria Gaynor for him. (laughs) We've got Bruiser, the beautiful black Labrador, very confident. I'm Too Sexy is his music. Uh, Rambo, the boxer, he's coming out to get it on. We've got a couple more. Willow, the miniature dash hound, dancing queen by ABBA. And we've got Norman, the French bulldog terrier, jump around, house of pain. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. It's, it's, it's 32 dogs we have. That's an attack on the senses in the most wonderful way that you can. So they're, they're going to be coming out a dog fashion show. Now, quite often um, when I see these fashion shows online with humans, I'm like, well, I wouldn't wear that. But tell me this, what are they going to be wearing this time? Is it very avant-garde or is this the sort of regular dog fashion you could see and be inspired to get for your own pup? Well, we're unsure, of course, what they're turning up to wear. We haven't met the dogs yet, so they'll be arriving on Sunday, the 16th at 10am at the Slumbo. But their owners have chosen the appropriate outfits for the type of dog. So I think there's going to be all sorts of fashion outfits there. And, of course, the owners can also wear fashion outfits. So it should be rather colourful and beautiful. Hey, so that's a good point, Lily. I'm thinking if you are one of these owners, you want to be at least trying to match your shoes to the collar, right? Exactly. Yeah. Perhaps more than your shoes. Yeah, oh, well, I'm sure it will be too. Yeah, one of my favourite movies of all time is called Best in Show which is just a, a beautiful <laughs> film about, as you know, many you know, dogs that are uh, the owners that can name all the nuts. I thought he's still one of my favourites I've ever seen on any film there. So Best in Show, of course, that's an American one about going off to this. Is this more about fashion or is this like an obedience? It's really the, about fashion. It's the fashion one. We, the Colombo Shopping Centre is about fashion along with many other things. And so we thought, well, what could we do that would be different and interesting? And so this is what this is what we're going to do. There's been a lot of dogs that have been turned away. We had to stop once we got to 32 dogs. We could have kept going. So next year we're going to run it for four weekends with a big grand final. Oh, that's brilliant! And I imagine yeah. too that, as you said, you know, like just trying to get things going again and get it of interest and give some people something to look forward to as well. I imagine well, the retailers would be quite quite happy with this dog show. Yes. The Colombo is allowed dogs, and so the retailers really back this. We have many dogs that come through with their owners during the day, so the retailers are all for it. And the other thing I wanted to say is we've got some fantastic prizes on the day, beautiful ribbons and rosettes and a large cup, so you can imagine all the little dogs with their rosettes on. And we've also got a first prize, which is to go to the Matai Peak Lodge, just north of Kaikoura, a night for two people, remote hideaway, 
just amazing stars and the winners get driven into this completely private, remote place. So we've even had people ring to say, this is really amazing, if we win that prize, can we bring our dog? Yeah, well, that's what I was wondering when you are saying that. <laughs> there better be a puppy involved that's allowed. Do they let the dogs come? Yes, they do. Oh, they do. Okay, good. All right. Now, many people have been listening to this going, well, I, I want to be a part of it. I want to see this. I want to be there and I want to see them. The Colombo Dog Fashion Show, where, when, how? It starts at 10 a.m., so be there, punk. It really starts at 10, so try and get there a little early. 16th, which is this Sunday, at the Colombo, and we are 363 Colombo Street in Christchurch. Perfect. That was Lily Cooper. Uh, head along to the show and uh, have yourself a wonderful time. Uh, in fact, enjoy your weekend uh, wherever you are in New Zealand. And um, I know that I heard there before about the earthquake. So uh, hopefully things have held okay for you and nothing has uh, fallen as it should have. Well, Morning Report is next with Kim and Guy on. Uh, in this day in 1994, the movie Pulp Fiction came out. This was uh, right at the start of the movie, of course. If you've ever seen it, this one will sit in your head forever. It was Jungle Boogie. It came out in 1973, and it's my song to uh, head into the weekend with. Have yourselves a good one. You can take First Up with you wherever you like by downloading First Up, the podcast, or we'll be back in your ears on Monday morning. <laughs>